Although Stannis remains a major threat, as far as the Riverlands is concerned, the War of Five Kings appears to be all but over. By the conclusion of A Dance with Dragons, all the River Lords have submitted to the crown, their knees forcibly bent. The noble rule of Houses Stark and Tully has been replaced by Walder Frey, plus his progeny, and Littlefinger. The biggest force for justice is a band of outlaws who were but shadows of their former selves, and led by one besides. In the aftermath of war, there is chaos and lawlessness, devastation, a lack of food, and on top of that, winter is coming. Before we looked at things on a macro level and moved through the history of the Riverlands, for the most part, on a large scale. We discussed how the Riverlands often fell into the center of conflicts. In part one, a picture was painted of the perils of being in the middle. In part two, we discussed various conflicts and finished up with the War of the Five Kings. In part three, we'll see these things on more of a first-hand basis. Instead of assumptions of collateral damage, we'll see things that from the perspective of individuals in small groups, most of whom are, are simply trying to stay alive. We'll also be taking a very close look at some of the main characters, which we don't always get to do a lot of when discussing purely historical topics. Uh, Jamie and, Prien- and Brienne's point of views cover quite a bit of the action, to the point that this, ep- this episode is partly a review of their chapters. This, of course, is because these two spend the majority of their time in the Riverlands. Well, let's not to forget about Arya's A Storm of Swords chapters and Merritt's epilogue slash epitaph. And because we're detail junkies, we also mine the other chapters for relevant data. Cersei has a lot to say about the Riverlands, for example. Uh, I'm, but, of course, she doesn't actually go there. She hasn't been there since the first book. That said, though... Uh, this is History of Westeros Podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series and HBO's Game of Thrones. Right on. And <laughs> we'll keep this is this is our this is part three of our history of the Westerlands uh, history of the Riverlands episode. So if you want if you haven't seen part one and two, you probably want to watch those first. Absolutely. Though it's not necessary. It's not necessary. This is this is about more plots and the spoilery stuff that happens in Feast for Crows and Dance with Dragons. The three episodes are, are fine as standalones. Uh, if you prefer to see things chronologically, then by all means start with the first one. But you will not. Um, it won't be. You won't be confused if you start on this one. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so in this episode, we're also going to cover a few of the houses we haven't given detailed coverage to, uh, while getting up to date with the rest. Starting where we left off. Though many river lords were forced into surrender, several held out. Partly in response to Jamie refusing to be Tommen's hand, Cersei orders him to deal with these holdouts, among other tasks. So she sends him off into the Riverlands to get some jobs done. We start with the, uh, we start with the point at which Jamie first enters the Riverlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamie's party consists of uh, Sir Adam Marbrand, Sir Lyle Craycall, aka Strongbore. Uh, Jamie Squires, who are Josmond Peckleton, as well as a page and a piper. Red Ronnet Connington, Sir Dermot of the Rainwood. Uh, Sir Kenos of Case, and Sir Stephen Swift. There's also a maester with four cages of ravens, so he can send messages back to King's Landing. Uh, Sir Flemont Brax. As well as the King's Justice himself, Sir Illyn Payne. Oh, yeah. Including others who uh, bring full units, such as Sir Bonifer Hasty. Uh, who brings his Holy 100 and Lord Sarsfield's mounted archers. Jamie has about eight to 900 men with him. 
Uh, with the execution of the, with the exception of the Piper and Page Squires, none of these people are Riverlanders, though. I mean, look at that name. It's all ton of Westerlanders. The River, the River Lords who are helping finish up the war for the Crown are already deployed in sieges. They're already out in the action, while others are attempting are attempting to rebuild the damage done by the war. It's interesting to note that despite complete lack of enemy armies in the field, Jamie has his men build fortified camps every night. He thinks of his uncle Sir Stafford in the Battle of Oxcross, where Rob surprised uh, Stafford's army near Lannisport completely unexpectedly. So, and of course, Jamie himself was surprised during the Siege of River Run um, by the ambush that Rob and the Blackfish had laid for him. So, what we're seeing is a wiser, more cautious Jamie, someone who's not quite as bold and, and impatient. Uh, as will become the theme throughout this episode, outlaws show up. For starters, Jamie's, Jamie deals with small, small groups of outlaws at places such as the Keep of House Woad, uh, sworn to Harrenhal. He finds the place empty, but for outlaws, and he simply hangs them. Quote, it felt good. This was justice. Make a habit of it, Lannister. And one day men might call you Golden Hand after all. Golden Hand the just. Very good quote. Good luck, Jamie. Uh, shortly <laughs> after that, he arrives at Harrenhal. Prior to leaving for his tour de Riverlands, Jamie is told, <laughs> Jamie is told by Cersei that no one at Harrenhal has been responding to their ravens. Jamie reminds her that it's Sir Gregor's men at Harrenhal and that they are probably stupid, implying illiterate, and more likely to eat the ravens than read the messages. <laughs> Cersei's main concern is Sarah Willis Manderley whom she needs to send back to White Harbor per the surrender terms that Lord Banderley made with the Crown. Basically, he agreed to bend the knee, but only after his son was returned to him. Cersei required a demonstration of loyalty, which he provided in the form of Lord Davos Seaworth's head on a spike. Yes. Uh, since the phrase verified the execution of Davos, Cersei intends to uphold her end of the bargain and send Sir Willis home. But she made the deal without, without certainty that Sir Willis act, was actually still alive. <laughs> yeah, typical Cersei. Yeah. <laughs> As it turns out, he is alive and reasonably healthy for talking his physical condition. But mentally, psychologically, he seems kind of uh, broken a mm. bit. Um, he, kind of, he collapses at Jamie's feet and just you know sobs once he finds out he's being released. But, um, but that's another matter entirely. So, several other unnamed highborn prisoners are there as well. Mm -hmm. uh, interestingly, uh, Sarah Willis Manley is a bit of a parallel to his <laughs> father, consider because they've both now eaten human flesh. <laughs> of course, Willis did so unwillingly, but they've both still eaten humans. Yep, that's a funny little dot mm -hmm. connect there. <laughs> the Manderleys are the cannibal house <laughs> of Westeros, apparently. Also, only three people of Lady Went's household. Remember, Lady Went was the last lawful... Uh, ruler of Harrenhal before the war started. Uh, the three are Pretty Pia, uh, no longer so pretty thanks to Sir Gregor. Um, the armorer Ben Blackthumb, who has got to be north of 70 years old. He served the last Lord Lawston long ago. And the cook who let Se Sir Gregor and his men in in the first place. He opened a postern door for them to get in and they did their thing. <laughs> uh, the Castellan left in charge uh, was by Sir Gregor when he left to King's, go back to King's Landing after Cersei summoned him was Polliver, who you remember from Arya's prayers, and of course you probably remember 
the the fight that Sandor Clegane and Arya had with Polliver and the Tickler and the little Sarsfield mm-hmm. Squire that resulted in Polliver's brains being splattered all over the ceiling of this uh, inn's common room. So, no more Polliver. Yes. Uh, Jamie is pretty unambiguous with his opinion of Harrenhal. Quote, Gods, but I hate this bloody castle. Harrenhal had seen more horror in its 300 years than Castle Rock had witnessed in 3,000. <laughs> and, well, Jamie pretty much, it makes sense for Jamie to dislike Harrenhal. Apart from the normal reasons to be disturbed by the place, Jamie was given the white cloak at the tourney at Harrenhal, and then he was sent home by Ares in a fit of pettiness without a chance to compete. And that's something that 15-year-old Jamie really wanted to do. Yeah, he, he he was itching to compete and fight in that tournament, and he just wasn't allowed to. And, and that was kind of a change in his mindscape from then on. He kind of realized what was up. But uh, moving on with some other details about Hall. Remember that Kyburn spent a good amount of time there. And he, there's an interesting connection we can make. If you recall from the previous episodes, we went through the history of Hall, And one of the houses that ruled Hall for a good long time was House Strong. Now, an interesting connection bet- between Kyburn and the undead champion that he made out of Sir Gregor, which we call uh-huh. the Kyborg. <laughs> is that he named his monster Sir Robert Strong. And Strong is a house that ruled in Harrenhal. And perhaps for two separate stints. Yeah, but we're clear on that. But... You, can, you can look at other episodes for more on how strong. Not a lot. So perhaps Kyburn learned something in the library at uh, maybe that, or maybe he was just influenced by the name Strong and decided to use it that way. But uh, we can't help but think a little conspiratorially when we see that connection mm-hmm. there. We get this this big necro giant thing that, <laughs> that Kyburn has created, the Kyborg, and he names it after the last castle where he spent significant time, where people that ruled there. So, yeah, the, the library at Heron Hall, there might be some cool stuff there. Remember, that's also a scene where Roose Bolton burned this book after reading it, and Arya watches him, and that's kind of a creepy scene. So, it makes you kind of think there's some, some cool stuff in the Heron Hall library, and that big cursed. Mm-hmm. Castle like that, you never know. So, uh, so then Heron Hall has a new Castellan now, though not a new lord, obviously, because that <laughs> is Peter Baelish. Yeah, has a new Castellan, Sir Boniface Hasty the Good, uh, and his Holy Hundred. Uh, well, there is eighty-six. Fourteen died on the Blackwater. Uh, I wonder how long they'll hold it. Yeah, probably as about as soon as they find out that Cersei has rearmed the Faith. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's a potentially epic, gigantic game-changer mistake, which we will cover in more detail when we do our religion series, which is next up. That's right. So, more on that later. In the meantime, the Holy 100 will be faced with the choice of staying at this cursed castle of Hall and guarding it, or perhaps... Joining this reformed holy order that's kind of gloriously returning to the Seven Kingdoms. <laughs> I don't think that's a tough choice for those guys. I, if, I'm a, if we're betting, if, if I'm betting on it, then I think I'm betting on that. So, <laughs> uh, but it's kind of funny to think about it this way. They're the eighty-six. I don't know if George meant that as a pun. Yeah, you know, eighty-six. I think they're going to eighty-six themselves right out of there. Yep, that's great. Jamie <laughs> suspects he was appointed by Lord Orton Merriweather as Master of Lots. Orton is soon promoted to hand, and then he flees when Cersei is imprisoned by the Faith. Yeah, he got to do a few weird things. He make a, make a few bad decisions before he was sent away, or before he ran Not sent away, before he ran off, rather. <laughs> so, oh, another interesting scene that happens at Hall near the end there is... Jamie wanders off uh, and, and finds Sir 
uh, Red Ron at Connington at the bear pit. And Jenny asked him what he's doing there. And he says, oh, I wanted to see where the bear fought uh, the maiden fair. <laughs> Basically, he's referring to Brienne. And Jamie, you know, kind of asked him. He's like, "Well, what's uh, what's up with that? Why? What's so interesting about her to him to you?" And Red Running points out that he was engaged to her, so he's got you know he knows her better than most. And of course, he starts insulting her, and it's kind of a revealing mm-hmm. moment. Jamie just smashes him in the face with his golden hand, and 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 gets mad at him basically kind of coldly says you're speaking of a highborn lady you know, you've got to <laughs> speak scene. properly so you're kind of like wow so jamie uh has a lot of respect for brienne after what they went through together and this is going to come back uh to be very important later in this episode when we mm-hmm. touch on when jamie and brienne actually converge again in the storyline but we'll get back to that in the meantime also though it's important to point out a factor about red ron and connington this is the same connington who is called to account by the small council at during Kevin's epilogue chapter in A Dance with Dragons. So basically the last chapter of the series we have to this point. And they're kind of uh, trying to figure out whether he's got something to do with Aegon Sixth invasion, which has just happened. And of course, it's one of the main leaders of Aegon's invasion is John Connington. So he's, of course, a relation to Red Ronan Connington. Now, we know that Red Ronan Connington has nothing to do with any of that. He, he was as surprised as the rest of Westeros when Aegon showed up. But the crowd doesn't know that, so they're kind of thinking maybe he's got something to do with it. So they're, they're just, you know, they're checking him out for that. Uh, yeah. Anyways, moving on to dispossessed, destroyed, or extinct houses. Uh, first up, we have Jamie, who next moves on to Derry. During the war, Derry was burned tw- once and sacked twice. Ouch. Yeah, ouch. Tywin had given the seat to his nephew Lancel over that of his ally, Lord Walder Frey. Uh, a conversation between Jamie and his cousin, Sir Davin, Warden of the West, tells us plenty. Jamie says, I saw Lancel's bride at Derry. Gatehouse Amy. Gods be good. I couldn't believe that Lancel picked that one. What's wrong with that boy? He's grown pious, said Jamie. But it wasn't him who did the picking. Lady Amore's mother is a dairy. Our uncle thought she'd help Lancel with the dairy small folk. How? By fucking them? <laughs> you know what? You know why they call her Gatehouse Amy. She's raises she raises her portcullis for every knight who happens by. She also apparently has a relationship with Sir Harwin Hardstone, uh, Plum rather. Hardstone being He's his nickname. He's got a hard stone for her. <laughs> He's apparently a strong commander, a tough fighter, who gets his nickname from both from the plum sigil. Of course, the center of a plum is often called a stone. And because of the fact that he wields this large mace, which is like a distinctive weapon, you know, just mostly you see guys with swords and axes. So a big old mace kind of stands out, kind of like Robert's Warhammer, I guess. Um, he also should be distant kin there to Brown Denton. There are a lot of other plum. big old maces, though. <laughs> mace Tyrell is our favorite big old mace, I yes. suppose. <laughs> He's big because of all that hot air inside him. <laughs> um, so, once again, uh, he could be a distant kin to Brown Ben Plum. He should be, anyway. And it's kind of interesting because Harwin Plum, when he came, he brought... It says that he's the commander of the garrison and that some new soldiers came with him. Well, we know that the Derry garrison was put to the sword by Sir Gregor, so it seems like the garrison is in pretty much entirely made up of Westermen, so it's a bit of encroachment there by the, <laughs> by the West. But, you know, they're conquerors. I guess they get to make those decisions and, and divvy out the land the way they want. But that doesn't mean the small folk will be happy about it, so we'll have to see mm-hmm. if that, um, that causes any friction a little later. Mm-hmm. 
So, uh, Lancel converses with Jamie, um, shortly after this, Jamie finally goes to find Lancel at the, at the Sept or whatever. Right. Uh, and some pretty major s- subjects are discussed. Uh, Lancel plans to renounce his lordship. It's pretty big. Yeah. A moment to reflect on the general change in Lancel. This is a guy who, remember, who was so proud of his little mustache, that Tyrion points out, and who was, you know, getting to have sex with Cersei, and, and I remember that scene where Tyrion just kind of takes him down after Lancel comes in all arrogant and cocksure and says, you have to do this, and the queen says that, and he's all trying to rise and be a knight and be just like Jamie Lannister, and now he's giving up his lordship, trying to join the faith. I mean, that is, this is just a complete 180. <laughs> yeah. He even admits his role in King Robert's death. Like, mm-hmm. that's a pretty big one. Yeah. And then the Whopper, even bigger than admitting that you helped to kill the king. Yeah, from Jamie's point of view, maybe. Yeah, I guess from Jamie's <laughs> point of view. He admits that he did in- indeed sleep with Cersei. Yeah. Jamie, and, and prior to this, Jamie had reflected on Tyrion telling him that Lancel slept with Cersei. <laughs> and upon seeing Lancel, he was like, Tyrion's lying to me. Look at that kid. He's not going to... Tyr- Jamie wouldn't... I mean, Cersei wouldn't sleep with him. Look at that. But it turns out to be true. So it was a pretty big shock, I, I suppose. But but maybe Jamie suspected it subconsciously because... Well, he hoped it wasn't true. I think he... Yeah, I think he hoped it wasn't true. But I think he, on one level, he believed Tyrion. And then, of course, <laughs> Lancel's confession just, you know, just gave it away. I, I don't think Jamie had any doubts left after that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we also have... Uh, a few other little minor tidbits, some fun from fun little stories. We have Josmin Peckledon, who is Jamie Squire, who gets mm-hmm. has his first woman. He is deflowered. Yes. <laughs> you call deflower? Is it really called deflowering for boys? <laughs> yeah, I know you didn't have a flower. <laughs> <laughs> but it's from uh, Pia, who gives him his first um, time ride. I don't know what you call I it. <laughs> I said time. I Tumble. Yeah, Tumble works too. Call it. What a- Whatever they are doing you it on sex. some hay. That's what Lance's bed is there <laughs> is hay. Right. Uh, anyways, Josmin Peckledon, is, uh, to give you a little bit of backstory on him, during the Battle of the Blackwater, uh, Peck kills two knights, wounds a third, and captures two more. Which is, I think, pretty pretty cool. For, for like a 14-year-old. Yeah, for however old he is. Who hasn't even uh, been yeah. with a woman. That's pretty Yeah, for pretty someone who hasn't even had a woman. For his efforts, the crown awards him a sword, a suit of armor, a choice of any warhorse in the royal stables and knighthood when he comes of age. Uh, I, I don't know why they wouldn't just give it to him at that point. I yeah. I guess because he was too young, maybe. Too I don't young, know. Just, you know make I, I suppose they he have did to. Such a good job. Yeah, he's certainly ready. He's sort of, sort of proving himself in battle. Yeah. I think he's uh, got the skill required to be a knight. Better yeah. than better fighter than a lot of knights. That so we can yes, think of. if he makes it, if he, if he comes of age, you know, if he lives through the events right now, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> that's always a toss up, isn't it? Yeah. So we also have Lyle Craighall named Stronghor. Stronghor. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. Strongbore. Where is my yes. mind? Uh, his sigil is a boar, obviously. The Craighall sigil is a boar. Um, outlaws at Derry inspire Strongbore to declare that he'll return to help hunt them down after River. And, of course, he could take his pick uh, and, and just just point to the map blindly in the Riverlands, and, and there's probably outlaws there that need dealing with. So he didn't have to... I don't know what was so particularly inspiring about the, the outlaws near Derry. It's actually the the pleas... <laughs> it was the pleas of some of the Derry women there and some of the other nobles that, that kind of mm-hmm. won him over. And his... His yeah, knight's also, honor was, was touched on. I think also wanting to kill Sandor Hugain is also a fair. Absolutely, he he he's, he acts through throughout these chapters. Strongbor acts like a guy who really wants to prove himself. He he talks about dueling Blackfish and uh, you know to to give the Blackfish a noble end, saying he deserves a noble end, and that I'm the man to give it to him. 
But he also says he specifically wants to hunt down Sandor Clegane. <laughs> Jamie doesn't say this out loud, but Jamie thinks to himself that Sandor Clegane would beat Strongbore. <laughs> now, it's not because S- Sandor is just such a monster, because Strongbore is a huge man also. When Jamie thinks to himself much earlier in Storm of Swords, who is stronger than him? He thinks of the Cleganes, he thinks of a few other people, and one of those people he mentions is specifically Strongbore. Uh, but he's also at the time thinking about how Brienne is about as strong as him, or perhaps more strong. So, mm-hmm. so that's kind of interesting. But he believes the difference in a fight between Sandor and Sir, uh, Sir Lyle would be Sandor's savage free, his ferocity, the fact that he fights like an angry beast, mm-hmm. um, whereas Strongbore is more of a you know chivalrous... You know, dowdy fighter who is, you know, inspired by nobility and, and honor and, and trying to be glorious rather than just being an, an angry man. <laughs> Sandor Clegane is. So, moving on to some of the other houses that are fall into the dispossessed category, we have Lady Went again that we mentioned her earlier and in some of the prior episodes. She dies off screen, according to Peter Baelish. Uh, we don't know where, but uh, it's not really that important. She doesn't have any kids. She's mm-hmm. basically the last Wendt. There's technically one other Wendt who's married into the Frey's house, but there's no... There's as far as we know, of Wendt. As far, yeah, as far as we know, there's no claim out there by the Wentz. Now, interestingly, the sigil of the, of the Wentz that we, we touched on this briefly earlier, but I wanted to bring it back up for, uh, because we got, there's some things that come up in the Feast for Crows that we couldn't really talk about. Um, the... The fact is that the sigil of nine bats is an extension of the sigil of the previous house to rule Harrenhal, which is House Lothian, and they had a single bat. Now House Went has nine bats, so there's a couple of theories there that maybe the House Went is a cadet branch of House Lothian. Maybe they married into, I don't know, the Knight of Nine Stars, some sort of nine reference. We're just searching for nines. Why would it be a nine? Maybe a ninth cousin, something random like that. But... Um, there's an interesting connection there with one of Brienne's chapters where she encounters those two hedge knights, Sir Creighton Longwoe and Sir Illifer the Penniless. Now, when Sir Illifer sees the shield that Jamie, that um, mm-hmm. Brienne is holding, he has a reaction. Um, so let's, let's talk about that. Yeah, uh, Sir Illifer seems to view Brienne in a very poor light due to her carrying a Lothstan's shield. He goes as far as to pull a dagger on her. Uh, remember that the Lostons, you know, proceeded and are perhaps blood, rate, r- blood related to House Went. So their dark reputation called into question Brienne's choice of sigil. We have this quote. He says, Nonsense has dared to show that bat. Black is the deeds of them that bore it. But Brienne convinces them that she's a good person after all by swearing. Uh, by swearing an oath, a holy oath, and that certainly satisfies them. Oh, she swears good for a maid. If she lied, the gods will sort her out. Something to that effect. These guys are pretty, pretty big believers in um, after uh, justice in the afterlife, apparently. Yeah. So, but we we're gonna do a short video episode on how Slothston, where we talk some more about these theories about how they were formed and all that. So, a little more detail on that coming up. So, look out for that video a bit later, a couple weeks from now, probably. Mm-hmm. So, shortly thereafter, though. Brienne and her new companions run across a group of poor fellows. Her brave companions? Her, <laughs> no, no, no. 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 <laughs> Chanting as they marched, these, these sparrows and their companions were marching. Um, but one of these guys, it's a real, real easy thing to miss. One of these people that she encounters is the High Septon. Not yet the High Septon. The guy who becomes High Septon shortly very shortly thereafter. Um, 
Interesting little uh, side note about this. Uh, first, the, the description of the Septon will read for you so that for your comparison purposes. Uh, it's pretty clearly the same person as the High Septon. It says, The Septon had a lean, sharp face and a short beard, grizzled gray and brown. His thin hair was pulled back and knotted behind his head, and his feet were bare and black, gnarled and hard as tree roots. I mean, who could, you, who could forget those feet? <laughs> uh, but the side note I want to say is... Uh, People who watch the actual Game of Thrones show, which I'm pretty sure most of you do, uh, Mark Gaddis, uh, an actor, was cast in the show. But people were a lot of people have been guessing what they think he is, and I'm throwing it out there that my guess is that he will be the High Septon because I think he fits pretty well, and I, and if you look him up, I think he looks pretty good for it. And I would like it if they they show Brienne leaving, they show her meet this guy, and then throughout the season they just show a guy preaching in the streets of King's Landing. And then we cool. see him next, you know, we see him another season, and he's uh, he's the high septic. And I think that would be pretty cool, and so I'm just mentioning it because I think it's cool. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, but uh, this guy becoming the High Septon, though, is undoubtedly a blow to the Frey Hopes, as Lord Walder's son, which, uh, yeah, his one son, Lucian, <laughs> was uh, <laughs> making moves to achieve that title himself. Yeah, Kybert again, who took over as Master of Whispers for Varys, tells Cersei that he, at one point, that he was the number one candidate. So before this new High Septon just came in basically off the street and took the uh, Sept by storm and the small folk by storm in a sense, we had a phrase set to become the new High Septon. Whoa, that was close. So that's derailed, though. He, he was bribing people and having dinners, and then he would, apparently had recruited a whole bunch of the the other faith to kind of back him. No doubt his father was shipping him cash to help that, to help um, Greece, you know, the right people to help that move along. Imagine that if that had come to pass though. I mean, all these gains that the phrase would have made there. I mean, Lord Walter already went from being Lord of the twins and the crossing to Lord of the green fork, larger title. And of course his son is now Lord of river run. So he could have had all those things plus the high septum. That would have been, Quite a, uh, yeah. well, just that's just too much power for the phrase, <laughs> basically. Yes. Um, moving on, though, we go, we've talked, you know, about Brienne a little bit, uh, you know, with her seeing the high, with her seeing the new High Septon and Sir Illifer. Um, Brienne's journey takes her in and out of the Riverlands. So some parts we're not gonna, really going to cover in detail because they don't take place in the Riverlands. In fact, the episode with Sir Illifer that we just talked about takes place in the Crownlands. On the road to Duskendale. So, Brienne then goes to Maidpool, which sits just inside the Riverlands. Yeah, so, we will, we will cover that. Basically the border, yeah. yeah. Um, Lord Randall Tarley is in charge here now, even though he's a Western... I'm sorry, a Reachman. Um, and even though Lord Mooton is there and healthy and has bent the knee to the crown and is back in charge. But still, Lord Randall is in charge here. So, it kind of tells you something about uh, Lord Randall being authoritative... <laughs> Uh, he, in fact, mentions that Lord Ma- that Lord Mooton is a bit of a weakling, so <laughs> that comes up. He is sitting there dealing out justice when we first meet him. Uh, he's spending a lot of his time hunting down outlaws. That's one of the things he's... This is he's... the first time we see him ever, right? Or... I think it is, yes. actually. I think you're right. That's first the first time, time he appears on screen. You hear about him a lot. The infamous Randall Tarley, Samuel yeah. Hawley's father. I mean, yeah, you hear about him a lot. Just that alone. And yeah, plus other stuff. Yeah, so he's, a, he, he's apparently a great, great soldier. A really mm-hmm. highly uh, respected commander, but also a bit of a 
bit of a jerk, yeah, <laughs> kind of a hard ass. Interactions with Brienne, you know, you're like, you think, the, oh, this guy's awesome. He's such a badass. He's so, you know, he's. In the, but then the way he treats Brienne, you're just, it's kind of a boring. And of course, we already knew how he treated Sam, and that, you know, yeah. it's hard to not just immediately think of this guy as a total tard or a total <laughs> jerk after all that. You know, you just don't want to. The kind of guy that you just you hate before you've even met him, and, yeah. and once you do meet him, you you, you kind of feel like you were right in your feelings in the first place. So uh, we're going to talk more about the outlaws later in this episode. Actually, quite a bit more about outlaws in this episode. The uh, the, the presence of outlaws all over the four legged outlaws, two legged outlaws, one legged outlaws. Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> another interesting little tidbit though about Maidenpool is that Harry and Karstark is held prisoner here. He's the actual lawful lord of Carhold, not Alice Karstark. You remember that her new husband that John arranged way to the north was the new Magnar of Thin, and he married Alice Karstark for to help her make good her claim on Carhold, which was being you know trying to her uncle was trying to kind of take it from her. But in reality, Harry and the actual heir is out there and alive. So that could be a that could cause some friction if he comes back and and finds out that you know Rob's brother, the same guy that killed his father, has his that guy's brother has given his castle away, mm-hmm. and he doesn't even have the right to do that. He's on the Night's Watch, so that could be a little uh, bit of turmoil later. But that doesn't have a whole lot to do with Riverland, so we'll uh, we'll, we'll kind of mm-hmm. s- sneak by that one as much as we can. But it is kind of fun to point out how that's such a small little detail that just sneaks by, and it's really easy to miss that. Yeah, but. interestingly enough, though, about Harry is that while most nobles and other knights and other valuable prisoners were ransomed, Harry's was not paid by his family because his scheming uncle uh, aimed to get him executed by openly declaring Carhold for Shannis. Like, that's why he declared for Shannis was to... to Kill Harry. Yeah, he didn't care about supporting <laughs> Santa so much as he wanted to have his pursue his own agenda, which was getting mm-hmm. Carhold for himself. Yeah. But this didn't work. Uh, there's no update on this later or in A Dance with Dragons. So as best we can tell, he's still at Maidenpool. Yep. Hold on to that situation. We'll have to mm-hmm. see how that goes. Meanwhile, Brienne next makes her way to the Quiet Isle. She mm-hmm. leaves Maidenpool and and does a few other adventures. You know, she goes into Crackclaw Point. But but as far as the Riverlands, her next destination within there is the Quiet Isle. And she speaks with the elder brother. And there's some reasons, some really important conversations that are both uh, full of detail, that kind of subtle detail that, that clues us into some other storylines, but also just really, really well-written stuff. So we've, we've taken quite a few quotes out of this section. Mm-hmm. The elder brother and his brethren re- kind of revere the trident. In a sense, they're, it's a bit, it's almost shamanistic the way they combine their devotion to the seven with this sort of devotion to the river itself. They, they, they really kind of... It's almost a bit of worship the way they look at it. It's very they, they treat it as uh, something very natural and holy in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, one theme that is comes up through these conversations that Brienne has with the elder brother and some of the others is that the river is tireless and steady, and that is something that the the brothers I guess that that's something that they kind of appreciate. The holy brothers themselves would no doubt contemplate these details as signs from the gods, uh, evidence of their nature. The story of Rhaegar's rubies is a perfect example. We touched on that in previous episodes. But in current days, the river brings evil tidings, mysteries that are easy to solve, and grim besides. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to get into some quotes from that. Too many corpses these days, the elder brother side. Our gravedigger knows no rest. Rivermen, westermen, northmen, all wash up here. Knights and knaves alive. We bury them side by side. 
Stark and Lannister, Blackwood and Bracken, Frey and Derry. That is the duty the river asks of us in return for all its gifts, and we do it as best we can. Sometimes we find a woman, though, or worse, a little child. Those are the cruelest gifts. Gift? <laughs> Simply put, war is hell, and neither affiliation nor rank mean a thing when you're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, they all get buried alike, or buried alongside each other, and it's, it's all connected. So, But the other major subject dis- discussed at the Quiet Isle is Sandor Clegane. Mm-hmm. The elder brother has quite a bit to say about the Hound. I know a little of this man, Sandor Clegane. He was Prince Joffrey's sworn shield for many a year, and even here we would hear tell of his deeds, both good and ill. If even half of what we heard was true, this was a bitter, tormented soul, a sinner who mocked both gods and men. He served, but found no pride in service. He fought, but took no joy in victory. He drank to drown his pain in a sea of wine. He did not love nor was he loved himself. It was hate that drove him. Though he committed many sins, he never sought forgiveness. Where other men dream of love, of wealth, or wealth, or glory, this man, Sandor Clegane, dreamed of slaying his own brother, a sin so terrible it makes me shuddered to speak of it. Yet that was the bread that nourished him, the fuel that kept his fires burning. Ignoble as it was, the hope of seeing his brother's blood upon his blade was all this sad and angry creature lived for. And even that was taken from him when Prince Oberyn of Dorne stabbed Sir Gregor with a poisoned spear. You sound as if you pity him, said Brienne. I did. You would have pitied him as well if you had seen him at the end. I came upon him by the trident, drawn by his cries of pain. He begged me for the gift of mercy, but I am sworn not to kill again. Instead, I bathed his fevered brow with river water, and gave him wine to drink and a poultice for his wound. But my efforts were too little and too late. The hound died there in my arms. You may have seen a big black stallion in our stables. That was his warhorse, Stranger, a blasphemous name. We prefer to call him Driftwood, as he was found beside the river. I fear he has his former master's nature. Now, before this conversation... In typical Martin fashion of giving us the answer before he gives us the riddle, we see a huge man digging graves. Uh, Clues indicate this man may in fact be the hound, despite what the elder brother tells Brienne about him dying. I mean, let's look at these clues. There is the presence of stranger, Sandor's horse. And we also have elder brother saying the The hound hound is dead, using the same metaphor on himself later, referring to his own death. He says... Mm -hmm. When I died in the Battle of the Trident, I fought for Prince Rhaegar, though he never knew my name. Same metaphor about dying and being reborn. The Gravedigger is a huge man with a hidden face, and there is the symbolism of the dog running to him and his affection towards it. Right. It's yeah, that's, that's easy. That's, it's very descriptive, the way George makes us see this dog running over to the Gravedigger and, and gives us the, shows us that the, the Gravedigger pauses to scratch the dog behind the ears. I think that's... That's a pretty big, uh, (laughs) subtle clue there. Also, from the way he moved, this is a bit of a quote, the way he moved, it was plain to see that he was lame, the gravedigger. This also also fits perfectly with Sandor because he took a serious leg injury, leg wound from a sword cut during that fight with Polliver and the Tickler. So, once again. So, 
Tell us what you think. The open question is, is the gravedigger Sandor Clegane? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so you can post that on our post that on one of our pages, either Twitter yeah. or Facebook, whatever. Give us tell us what you think, or post it here in the video. Yeah. Regardless of the truth, though, the realm at large believes Sandor Clegane is alive. So, in, as far as perception goes, he's out there. But this is a different guy, of course. There's a series of men that have been wearing his helm, uh, his infamous helm, we should call it. But besides the helm, these men. Uh, so it's actually a, a couple of different men that have worn it, but they all these people have a, a thing or two in common. Um, they're all outlaws. Mm-hmm. Without the king's peace and combined with the lack of lords to mete out justice, outlaws and broken men are often dealt with vigilante style. Uh, after Brienne and her party leave Maidenpool, they see the results of Riverland's justice. Hardly a hundred yards went by without a corpse. They dangled under ash and alder, beech and birch, larch and elm, hoary old willows and stately chestnut trees. Each man wore a noose around his neck and swung from a length of hempen rope, and each man's mouth was packed with salt. Some wore cloaks of gray or blue or crimson, though rain and sun had faded them so badly that it was hard to tell one color from another. Others had badges sewn on their breasts. Brienne spied axes, arrows, several salmon, a pine tree, an oak leaf, beetles, bantams, a boar's head, half a dozen tridents. Broken men, she realized, drags from a dozen armies, the leavings of the lords. Some of the dead men had been bald and some bearded, some young and some old, some short, some tall, some fat, some thin. Swollen in death with faces gnawed and rotten, they all look the same. On the gallows tree, all men are brothers. So what you're seeing there is men who fought against each other in war joining together as broken men and wreaking havoc. Some of the broken men are hopeless and desperate. Some were black-hearted before becoming hopeless and desperate, such as those who who raided salt pans, hence the salt stuffed into their mouths. Note that there are common soldier escapees from the Wed Redding, as well as some of the Karstark men who uh, abandoned Rob's army when uh, Lord Karstark was executed. And they, of course, a lot of them went out to search for Jamie to try and collect the reward. <laughs> um, now, Gregor's men as well are not held in check. And we know what they do with their free time. So we have all these different types of people in the Riverlands causing all kinds of mayhem. and But it all looks the same. Compare the quote that I read a second ago to the quote that Ashea read during... Uh, the time at the uh, at the Quiet Isle, and compare the, just the notions about death and how everyone's the same when they're dead, mm-hmm. and how everyone's the same when they're desperate. They're all just trying to survive. Uh, but as bad as uh, Gregor's men are, uh, the worst must be the remnants of the Bloody Mummers, a.k.a. the Brave Companions. Right, and these are the ones that we're seeing hung, uh, as best as we can tell, besides... Now, these were, we're not saying these men were part of the Brave Companions originally, but they joined up with remnants of the Brave Companions who seem to be the leader of this raid at salt pans, which was extremely brutal. Uh, we're talking about women having their breasts cut off. Yeah. We're talking about young children being raped. We're talking about just the worst things that you can imagine as far as war. And that's relative to Westeros. These things are brutal and, and disgusting to people who are kind of used to violence. So that's really saying something. Mm-hmm. Um, now, during this raid at salt pans, there's a knight, the knight of salt pans, an old man named Sir Quincy Cox. He doesn't even come, he doesn't bother to come out. He hides behind his walls and just sits there. Brienne thinks that he should have died fighting. Yeah, we hear about this from multiple points of view. Uh, Jamie even hears about this while at Derry. And Brienne hears about this raid at the Quiet Isle. And we have Sir Arwood Frey mentioning it at one point as well. 
to Jamie during their travels. It's so we have we hear about this raided salt pans from about four or five different sources. So it's it's pretty big news what happened there. Uh, the narrative also suggests that it was the Brotherhood without banners, not say Randall Tarley or another, uh, you know, someone under the King's justice that did this hanging. So it was, more, it was one, an example of what we, we introduced this section with, which was a vigilante justice. Uh, with regards to the Brotherhood without banners, we got a first-hand look at them through Arya. Then for a while, we only heard of their doings from afar. But then we saw them in Brienne's last chapter in Feast which we will be talking about more at the end of the episode. And the difference was huge in terms of demeanor, disposition, purpose. They are less unified due to the progressively darker deeds that some of them are willing to do as they grow more desperate. But there's also a shift in leadership that's probably even more noteworthy. Under Lord Beric, who we must remember was handpicked by Ned Stark, obviously a guy known for being honorable, the Brotherhood was pretty noble as well. They, they were helping out... Um, helping to feed the commoners who had no food. They were handing out justice. It was a crude form of justice, but as far as Westerosi justice goes, it was pretty fair. Um, and, of course, they had gone after guys like the Brave Companions and tried to get them killed. They, there's a couple of examples of that, of them taking mm-hmm. them on. Arya witnesses one of those uh, examples firsthand much earlier. Mm-hmm. You could also note that uh, Edric Dane, uh, he's the Lord of Starfall, and he was the squire to Lord Beric Dondarrion, he left upon the death of his master. So he's gone back to, to Dorne, I suppose. We don't yeah, know. Yeah, I would like to hear more about Edric Dane. Yeah, we'll actually. have to, we'll have to hopefully very, catch up with him in the winter. Very, winter. very interesting. Yes. Now, uh, a quick where are they now for the rest of the Bloody Mummers, including the members who joined the company in Westeros? They originate in Essos. Right, so they gained some new recruits once they got to Westeros, namely Rorge and Biter. <laughs> Those two are dead now, thanks to Brienne and Gendry. She was also, or rather, she also took care of Shagwell, Timian, and Pig. That is pretty badass work by Brienne there. Timian, I think it is, tells Brienne that it was her, as much as Gregor, who killed Vargo Ho. Mm -hmm. She bit off his ear, if you remember, and apparently it became very infected. The fever he got from it may have influenced his stubborn decision to try to hold Harrenhal. Yeah, stubborn might be putting it mildly. Here's the goat. Vargo Hoat uh, holding Harrenhal, and um, all, pretty much all his men have deserted him because he's like, we have to hold my castle. It's my castle. I'm never giving it up. <laughs> the guy's got no men, and half the realm wants him dead. More than half the realm wants him dead, and he's like, no, nah, I'm going to hold on to it. Like, come <laughs> on, dude. you got to be kidding me. Nice try, goat. This wasn't going to happen. Yeah, speaking of the men who deserted him, Urswick, Ace, a.k.a. Faithful Urswick, somewhat noted for his loyalty, uh, keeping... Keep in mind that we're talking about what passes for loyalty amongst sellswords, and particularly awful uh, ones. And uh, others, probably including Zolo, tried to make it to Old Town. We don't know if they made it or not, but I suspect that they have not escaped Westeros. Right. Right now, uh, Uh, Old Town Town is dealing with Euron's invasion. And the Ironborn uh, are making shipping in general really difficult. There's just a whole lot going on over there, so... Outgoing ships, not a lot of those. But there's another outlaw band out there whom some have grown to fear most of all. The wolves, led by Arya's she-wolf Nymeria, are what we're talking about. <laughs> After driving her off early in A Game of Thrones to keep her alive, the pup grew into a monster. Uh, Arya occasionally has wolf dreams and sees the Riverlands through her wolf's eyes. Mm-hmm. The most significant of these is when she witnesses Nymeria pull her lady mother from the river. 
uh, dragging her to shore just before having to flee in advance of Lord Beric's party, who happened to be around there at the same time. Mm-hmm. At that time, the narrative tells us that wolves fled before men as game fled before wolf. And this was from the perspective of a wolf. So that means a lot. But now things have changed, apparently. Nymeria now thinks... Some of her little gray cousins were afraid of men, even dead men, but not her. Meat was meat, and men were prey. She's feasted on a shepherd's flock, his dogs, the shepherd himself. Mm-hmm. Arya also sees the wolves kill a small group of bloody mummers, particularly, uh, per- rather personally killing the Dothraki sellsword Ego mm-hmm. uh, in a very graphic scene that gives, us, gives the reader a glimpse of just how potent the wolf is, both in terms of her strength and her, her senses. Uh, she hears Ego's many tinkling bells, which indicates that he's a blooded warrior who's won many battles, yet he is terrified of this wolf. So she, sent, she, she senses like his palpable fear. I would I think Ego maybe isn't as honorable of a distract. Maybe he's lost a fight, you know, and he didn't cut off his bells. Yeah, I, I would throw that. that out there, that maybe Ego that. is, you know, not, not so honorable as all that. But in any case, I'm sure he's won battles because he's not dead right now. Yeah, but that's well. Well, now he is, but yeah, yeah, yeah he is dead. <laughs> he, he wasn't he's, he's dead never until then. Period. He never was <laughs> killed by a man. He was killed no. by a wolf. Yes. Uh, the previously mentioned Lord Mooton of Maidenpool also rode out with his sons and a pack of hounds to try and hunt down some of these wolves. And the result of that was Lord Mooton no longer has a pack of hounds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, giving the character an extra dimension of creepiness, as if he needed it. Roose Bolton goes hunting wolves while at Harrenhal. The thing was that, unlike the others, he actually succeeded at coming back with several dead wolves, including some pups, which mm-hmm. is maybe it's not quite as honorable and not quite as prestigious to come back with some dead pups. <laughs> but he got some regular dead wolves, too. Uh, this was his symbolic moment, indicating his betrayal of House Stark. Uh, though we all know, in retrospect, at the very least... Uh, maybe you still deny Ruth Bolton didn't do a thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that he was opportunist, opportunistic and ruthless all along. He even made a pair of gloves out of the pups. <laughs> Perhaps a nod to Brandon Rickon? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's funny. The wolves even troubled Jamie on his way across the Riverlands. An outrider among Sir Adam Marbrand's scouts lost his horse to the wolves in the time it took him to dismount and relieve himself on a tree. So, whew, that's, that's, that's pretty fast. If you think desperate and hungry men are dangerous, wait till we all see what a huge pack of desperate and hungry wolves can do. Feels like this is just the beginning, and they're just starting to attack men, so... Ooh, yeah, I mean, Sir Daniel Frey, he reports that their baggage train was assaulted by the packs, killing two centuries, even. They're killing armed men <laughs> in, you know, they're not, they're like, attacking the, the huge group, but they're, attack, they're attacking stragglers on the outside of the group, which this they're is They're attacking a large group, yeah. Well, I just mean they're, they're, ta- yeah. they're attacking the outsides of it, oh, not, I know like, what you mean. not, I just mean, they're, like, they're yeah. not attacking, it's, like, a few men walking alone. Exactly, it's really, it's... it's, it's they're, it's, they're it's being smart situation. even about it. They're not like going into the main group. They're getting, they're, 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 they know to get the stragglers. Yeah, it's, it's, mean, it's pretty it's pretty. Being led by a dire wolf, I mean, they, yeah. Uh, so Jamie and his party make it through, though, without any further trouble, um, reaching their main destination, which, which is, is the Siege of River Run. Yeah. Ooh, uh, quote we have that has some nice in, in, information about what's going on at River Run. Jamie noted the noted the banners of Leicester and Vance, of Root and Goodbrook, uh, the acorns of House Smallford, and Lord Piper's Dancing Maiden. But the banners he did not see gave him pause. The Silver Eagle of Malister was nowhere in evidence, nor the Red Horse of Bracken, 
the willow of the rigers, the twining snakes of page. Though all had renewed their fealty to the iron throne, none had come to join the siege. The Brackens were fighting the Blackwoods, Jamie knew, which accounted for their absence, but as for the rest... Yeah, there's, they're not fully united. They, they may have surrendered, but that doesn't mean they're excited about going after their former comrades. Uh, they're going to try to hold off as much as they can. As many excuses as they can. Yeah, for no, no doubt. It's, it's, they, just, they hate the situation. They're kind of doing yeah. what they have to do. Now, the Blackfish, of course, is the guy in charge of, of River Run. He is the Castellan. He was left behind from the Red Wedding to kind of hold the line. He was the warden of the Southern Marches. And he, being an experienced... Tough veteran who does what has to be done, scoured the land clear of huh. of food. So the, the besieging army has a tough time yeah. of supporting themselves. It's and really they're also this also causes a bit of infighting, which I'm sure the Blackfish is hopefully, hoping to accomplish by the others not sharing their food so well. Uh, quote, the last bird that they'd received suggested that the besiegers were having difficulty keeping themselves fed. Brendan Tully had scoured the land clean before retiring behind his walls. Not that it required much scouring. From what Jamie had seen of the Riverlands, scarce a field remained unburnt, a town unsacked, a maiden undespoiled. So there's a meeting that Jamie has to kind of figure out what's happening. He arrives, things are a bit disorganized, and so he kind of gets everybody together to, to kind of take stock and, and, and kind of reanalyze their plan to make it more yeah. efficient. And one of the things that's noteworthy is there's this fight that breaks out, an argument that breaks out between... Lord Piper and the phrase. And can you really picture Piper and the phrase arguing the way they did in front of Tywin? Uh, I, I know. I, I think not. I think that Tywin's pe- people behaved more in front of Tywin. Of course, they argue a bit in front of him. That's 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 not going to you know, that'll happen too. But the, doing what they did in front of Tywin is not very likely compared to what they're able to do in front of Jaime. I think that mm-hmm. there's a loss of a big, major loss of authority there. Even though Jaime's the Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, brother to the Queen, you know. Family to the king, uh, we know he's his father, but you know. <laughs> but then uh, we we also then see Edmure Tully in chains as a stud, if you will. I guess that's the best word for him. <laughs> yes, yeah, he's, he's at first expected to just be killed when or if Rosalind bears a son. Right, but his deal with Jamie Lannister, which involved surrendering River and ordering uh, the the castle to surrender rather than having to go through the siege or a storming of the castle, uh, it, that improved his fate significantly. Uh, I don't think it was an act of cowardice to surrender River Run. I think it was an act of a man who had to do what he had to do, and it saved a lot of lives. I so. think he needs to worry about the fact that, well, he he was guaranteed safety by Jamie, and Jamie's sending him to the Westerlands to be held there. But what happens when Jamie's not around? What happens when the phrase sent an assassin to try to kill him? What you know, right? Like Edmure still has a lot to worry about. Like. Jamie has guaranteed his safety. If Jamie's not in charge and Cersei has Castle Rock, who, what does she care about what Jamie promised? So Edmure still definitely has to worry about yep. that. Yep, his life is still kind of hangling by a thread, even though his lot has slightly improved from yeah. where it looked like. Yeah, he better just hope Jamie stays around and, and somewhat <laughs> powerful that's because right. that's what's holding him alive. That's right kind of true. That's funny that, that <laughs> Edmure's life sort of depends on Jamie, and this is Edmure who who. Stated to Jamie that you'll never know how much I hate you. <laughs> uh, anyway, I like to talk for a minute about how I think it's pretty brilliant how Jamie handled the situation of the surrender. Here he came into a situation where the the everything was kind of a botched job. The the, the siege wasn't progressing very well. Brendan Tully wasn't intimidated by any of the threats that were put out to him, 
and the the procedures weren't even united on what they were doing. They were infighting. They were they're not helping each other. Perhaps some of the river lords who were at the siege were actually helping the outlaws or actually helping the besiegers, maybe. <laughs> so, uh, what? But what actually Jamie did was he used his reputation. He he used what people think about him, even though he's a changed man. He used that as kind of a weapon. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's pretty ironic. Jamie and his aunt, who have a great conversation, this is Jenna Lannister, who is, of course, the wife of Eamon Frey, the soon-to-be, and post, uh, post the siege, he is the new lord of Riverrun. They point out the folly of making a threat that you have no intention to carry out. They're speaking of Ryman's threat to hang Edmure. He puts out the block every day yeah, and says, I'm going to yeah, hang Edmure. Yeah, every day he would threaten to hang Lord Edmure, and the Blackfish was never moved. He would deduce that Edmure's life was forfeit in any case. And that's a, de- that's a deduction that was correct at the time. Of course, Ryman never went through with this threat. So what we're seeing is Jamie tells people, don't make a threat you can't carry out. And then he does that. Yeah. But he's got a good reason for it. <laughs> I mean, he does not take his own. Yeah, he makes threats to Edmure that he doesn't want to carry out. But in some cases, such as he, he threatens destroying the castle entirely, he's making threats he is not even authorized to carry out. So, uh... But because, yeah, because he's willing to kill his own king and possibly sleep with his own sister, uh, he's not to be taken lightly. Jamie knows this and uses it to his advantage. He later uses his reputation in a similar manner when dealing with Titus Blackwood, though to a much lesser degree. This works, of course, and Edmure does surrender the castle, but the Blackfish escapes. More on that later. So meet your new lord of Riverrun. Emin Frey was a fretful man with nervous hands. He might have weighed ten stone, but only wet and clad in mail. At one point, Eamon says, I fear for all of us with Lord Tywin gone. And his own wife, Tywin's older sister, quips, uh, You feared for us all when he was here. Another one. Sir Jamie, your lord father's faith in me was well placed, you shall see. I mean to be firm but fair with my new vassals. Blackwood and Bracken, Jason Malster, Vance and Piper, they shall learn that they have a just overlord in Eamon Frey. My father as well, yes. He is the lord of the crossing, but I am the lord of Riverrun. A son has a duty to obey his father, true. But a bannerman must obey his overlord. Oh, gods be good. You are not his overlord, sir. Read your parchment. You were granted Riverrun with its lands and incomes. No more. Peter Baelish is the lord paramount of the trident. Riverrun will be subject to the rule of Harrenhal. Jamie himself thinks... It was hard not to feel contemptuous of Eamon Frey. Remember Sir Cleos Frey? Uh, the man who died alongside Brienne and, and Jamie after Catelyn set Jamie free? Well, uh, this same Eamon Frey is his father. <laughs> Were he alive, he'd be the heir to Riverrun. Instead, Cleos' son Tywin is the heir. Interestingly enough, Tywin Frey's, we'll call him Tywin F, nickname, uh, his, 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 his namesake, i.e. the Tywin, we'll call him Tywin L., <laughs> had his family's interest, of course, uh, over Frey's interest, uh, interest over the division of titles. Sir Cleos's wife is Jane Derry, who could have inherited the Derry lands and titles, but this instead went to Lancel, as we talked about earlier. The situation is explained extremely well by Jamie's aunt slash Tywin Lannister's sister slash Tywin Frey's grandmother, Jenna. <laughs> Your father should have granted us Derry. Cleos married one of the plowman's daughters, you will recall. His grieving widow is furious that her sons were not granted her lord father's lands. Gatehouse Amy is of dairy only on her mother's side. My good daughter Jane is her aunt, a full sister to Lady Maria. 
A younger sister, Jamie reminded her. And Ty will have River Run, a greater prize than Dairy. A poisoned prize. House Dairy is extinguished in the male line. House Tully is not. That muttonhead, Sarah Ryman, puts a noose round Edmure's neck, but will not hang him. And Rosalind Frey has a trout growing in her belly. My grandsons will never be secure in River Run, so long as any Tully hair remains alive. She was not wrong, Jamie knew. If Rosalind has a girl... She can wed Ty, provided old Lord Walder will consent. Yes, I've thought of that. A boy is just as likely, though, and his little cock would cloud the issue. And if Sir Brendan should survive the siege, he might be inclined to claim River Run in his own name, or in the name of young Robert Aaron. Now, we also learn that the Brotherhood Without Banners has infiltrated River Run. We see Jamie have a conversation with Tom O'Sevens, the singer for the Brotherhood, and it's a pretty amiable conversation. <laughs> but meanwhile, of course, it makes us aware that the Brotherhood is passing information about what's happening in River Run on to the outlaws who are making use of that information as best as they can. For example, uh, we hear many hangings performed by the outlaws, mostly of Frey's, but others as well. Ryman Frey, heir to all of Lord Walder's titles, is hanged only a few miles from River Run, with all these besieging armies nearby, so that's a pretty big deal. This hanging does more damage than, to, than the Brotherhood could have actually expected, because it also causes a little bit of infighting, or at least it, it, it perhaps promotes the notion of infighting. Ryman's son Edwin, who is, becomes the new heir, is thinking that his brother, Black Walder, is responsible for the death of their father, because it would put Black Walder second in line for succession. Now, Black Walder has done some shady and gross things, and I suspect he has perhaps done a bit of kinslaying. I think he may have had something to do with the death of his own grandfather, uh, who would be... I forget his name. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, Sir Stevron, there it is. And I, so, But his brother believes even worse of him, although in this case he's actually not guilty. Yeah, uh, having already covered the ex-lords of the Riverlands, now we need to cover the up-to-date power structure. Jamie notes that many of the River Lords are not at the Siege of River Run, which we pointed out in that quote. He also realizes that even amongst those who are participating in the siege, there are some with enemy sympathies. In some cases, he suspects the River Lords, and so do some others. Would that it were only them, said Lady Maria. Some of the River Lords are hand in glove with Lord Barrack's men as well. The small folk, too, sniffed her daughter. Sir Harwin says they hide them and feed them, and when he asks where they've gone, they lie. They lie to their own lords. So, Riverlands Roll Call. We need some, like, roll call music. <laughs> that. Old drummer yeah. there. <laughs> the notable River Lords. So, we're going to go through uh, a list of some of the River Lords and kind of get you up to date with where they're at, what's happening with them, and what the future may hold as well, in some mm-hmm. cases. Well, uh, the Tullys, well, there's no current lord there. Edmure is kind of, I guess, by courtesy, he's Lord Tully, but he has no seat no. anymore. Uh, but per the deal with Jamie, Edmure is going to be imprisoned at Casterly Rock. Uh, Rosalind will come to him once their child is born, and they'll be given a small keep uh, in that time as well. This keep will probably be in the west, <laughs> not in the Riverlands. <laughs> Otherwise, they would just have poor Emin Frey would die of fright. He'd be so worried that the Tullys would come take their seat back. Um, we also have Malister, whose current lord is Jason. Uh, Malister holds out for honor's sake, uh, which is predicted by Tywin, uh, but he surrenders after Black Walder shows up, threatening to hang Lord Jason's son, Patrick. Now, this works, unlike when Ryman threatens to hang Edmure, which we covered uh, quite a bit just now. It actually works, apparently, on the first try for Black Walder. Not only does Jason Malister probably not want to take the chance, but 
he knows Blackwater's reputation. He's he's not going to gamble that that Blackwater is gonna is a bluffing. He he's he's he thinks and probably rightfully so that Blackwater will carry out that threat, and so he relents immediately. Mm. Now we have Lord Vance. Now there's two Lord Vances. There's two House Vance has two branches. Mm-hmm. There's House Vance of Wayfarer's Rest, and their current Lord is Lord Carroll. Uh, the previous Lord Vance and Lord Piper. Uh, tried to hold the Lannister army at the Golden Tooth, but they were outnumbered and uh, facing Jamie Lannister. Lord Vance is slain and his son, uh, Carl, in Paris. Before the battle, word reaches their host about the raids of Sir Gregor and Sir Amory. Sir Carell, Vance, and Sir Mark Piper are amongst those who bring the grievance to Lord Eddard initially. Uh, the new Lord Vance, along with his friend Sir Mark, are pretty big in harrying the Lannister supply lines. We hear about these guys a lot during the war throughout it as as kind of teammates. They're always mentioned in combination, Piper and Vance, as Mm -hmm. kind of running through and causing a lot of trouble for Tywin as much as they can. They just don't have a lot of manpower, but Mm -hmm. but they continue to fight as much as they can. And uh, seem to do a lot of, seem to be pretty effective for such a small group. Um, Then there's the Vances of Atranta. Uh, Their current lord is Norbert. Yes, (laughs) Norbert. Uh, only, second only to Pate, as a terrible name. I think. <laughs> uh, he squired alongside Brendan Tully for Lord Derry. Uh, he's said to be old and blind, but he really he can't be too much older than Brendan if they squire together. He could just have bad health, or maybe he's playing it up a little bit. Yeah, certainly possible. Uh, as for as for House Piper, their current lord is Clement. Uh, there may be a connection with the Pipers to the Ironborn. They have a kind of a. The kind of Piper look seems to be red hair and maybe to be a little short and thick. But that doesn't tell us a whole lot. There are a good number of red-haired Ironborn, but that by itself isn't a whole lot of, um, whole lot of evidence. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, Quillon Greyjoy, that's Balon's father, married a Piper woman. Um, of course, this Piper that, that's woman... Just this, a... th- yeah, that's not Balon's mother, in other words. Right. He married a Piper woman and nothing came of it. Like, the son died, that's all. Yeah, but it's possible that the theory here that we're trying to put put out there is that maybe that's why he picked a Piper to marry, because they have some Ironborn blood. Now, the mm-hmm. reason they would have Ironborn blood, of course, is because the Riverlands was controlled by the Ironborn for so long. So you got to think there's still some yeah. vestiges of Ironborn culture in there, even though they're fully Riverlands now. Um, anyways, uh, during the war, uh, Piper had captured Lord Ontario Jast, which is a name I'm, I'm not actually quite fond of. <laughs> Jast. Not. Yeah, no, Ontario Jast. <laughs> one of my least favorite names in the series. Uh, <laughs> he's a Western man uh, married to a Lannister, but uh, Piper releases him upon his own surrender, or near enough. Now, Mark Piper, Clement Piper's son, who is the the badass that's always with Vance, helping do supply line uh, harrying and things of that nature, he is held at the Twins as a prisoner. Um, he, Lord Piper, in fact, oh, in, partly over frustration and fear over what's happening with his son, the fact that his son is in captivity, as well as the, the knights that attended Sir Mark when he went to the Red Wedding, who were probably all dead, but those were cousins of his. Um, he can't really control himself in this meeting. We, we alluded to this argument that happened earlier, a little, a little more detail on that. Mm-hmm. He just can't help himself when talking yeah. about the phrase. His, his revulsion is open. Yeah, I mean, he, he insults the phrase, and he says what he says. He says, it's a, pre- it's a pretty great uh, yeah, insult, it's, it's I think. A, it's one of the greats. It's a good burn. Series, yeah. <laughs> I don't imply a fray. I say what I mean straight out like an honest man. But what would you know of the ways of honest men? You're a treacherous, lying weasel like all your kin. I'd sooner drink a pint of piss than take the word of any fray. 
Now, so if you're looking for the guys amongst the Riverland, or Riverlords, rather, who are probably helping the other side, the guys <laughs> who are maybe helping the outlaws, the ones who aren't fully loyal, these this is a good place to start. Piper and Vance. Um, although, kind of openly uh, declaring your contempt for the people put above you is maybe not the best way to, to subtly get things <laughs> done behind the scenes. But I guess he just can't control himself. He's just so angry and, and pissed off at <laughs> these guys. So... Let's talk about the phrase, though, uh, as far as their current situation goes. Of course, Lord Walder is somehow still alive after all this, being you know an ancient man that he is. Um, and now his second son is Emin, as we've talked about at length already. Is so now the, we have, yeah, the, the phrase Lord of Riverrun, the phrase of the twins. Yeah, doesn't that just sound wrong, the phrase of Riverrun? But they're fighting with each other quite a bit. You know, the more power they have, the more they fight over it. Of course, we're talking about Black Walder doing his thing, and a couple other things are happening out there. The Lannisters of Derry, of course, are a new thing, and Frey, and that's a new house kind of happening. Um, and things aren't so great with them either, as we talked about. In fact, there's more Frey's dead after the Red Wedding than before. That's kind of a funny thing, right? Good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a good thing. A good funny thing. Yes. Uh, for more coverage, though, on the Freys, you should check out our episode on them. We have a whole episode on them, because there's a lot of Freys to go into, so yeah. check that out. Yeah. Um, there's also House Bracken, whose current lord is Jonos. Jonas' lands and keep uh, were despoiled, but he gained some lands during the surrender of Blackwood. He doesn't get as much as he wanted. He he told Jamie during uh, to 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 get this much land, certain amount of land for him. He didn't quite get as much as he wanted, but he got a good bit. But you got to think though that considering that he received this land from his rival Titus Blackwood, who was forced to surrender <sighs> some land to to his very hated uh, ancient enemy of of Lord Bracken. He probably, since Jamie gave him the choice, is it you got to give up some land. Now, most of Tito's land was was damaged during the war. Gregor despoiled it, or Amory Lors despoiled it. So he probably gave you know the worst pieces of land he could to Jonos. So he's like, here, take this burned ruin. You know, take that. Uh-huh. Uh, speaking of Tito's, he he is really important earlier in the war. He's kind of one of the standouts as far as being noble and being a good leader and, you know, kind of being really brave in particular. During, uh, during the dance uh, chapter, uh, one of Jamie's dance chapters, there's a couple of them, of course, Tito surrenders to Jamie and Jonas Bracken advises Jamie to take Tito's only daughter, Bethany. His beloved. His beloved only daughter, daughter. who he dotes on. His only daughter. He's loved her as a hostage. But Jamie instead takes Hoster, the walking history lesson, who is very useful to us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, for some ancient history and general background on House, Blue, House Blackwood, you can refer to part one. Yeah, we talked a good bit more about them. But for now, Tito's played a fairly prominent role in some of the early battles of the war. Remember that Edmure was, before being in captivity now, he had previously been in captivity really early in Game of Thrones, uh, but was, was set free during the Battle of the Camps. Um, and f- the way it went down was Rob's army arrives and... There's a battle going on, several different battles going on outside the walls. And Tidos realizes this from atop the walls, and he gathers the men inside and leads them out and joins the fray. They kind of take the Lannister besieging army kind of in the rear as they're dealing with this new threat. Uh, and they head straight, Tidos heads straight for where he believes Edmure might be held captive and successfully uh, frees him. Also showing just how devoted he is to the cause, how he takes his honor seriously. Even when Jamie is negotiating his surrender, he asks 
quote, for honor's sake, about the current state of his liege lord. So this is a guy that really uh, does all the right things, it seems. Now, this may be related to his religion. Of course, one of the things we point out in, in episode one is the Blackwoods are still worshippers of the old gods, which makes them really unique in the Riverlands and the South in general. Um, that is not something that we see a lot of. In fact, I yeah. honestly can't think of any other example of that. <laughs> uh, Jamie even thinks that he thinks that Tidos has more honor than Jono's Bracken. Indeed. Uh, Tidos is, in fact, the last Riverlord to surrender, and the last one to give up the Stark cause. On the other hand, Tidos was actually quite ready to surrender. It was simply that the man he'd least like to surrender to on the entire planet was the only man he could legally bend the knee to. He was the last Stark loyalist standing simply because Blackwood didn't want to sur- submit to Bracken. Now, another funny slash interesting slash unusual, perhaps mysterious aspect of Blackwood is this huge werewood that is dead, um, but not, you know, it's still there. It's still a, tr- a functioning tree. It's not growing anymore, but it's still there, sort of turning to stone. Every night... Apparently, a thousand or so ravens come and sit on this tree, and apparently this has been happening for thousands of years. Now, Blood Raven, who of course is now Bran's mentor, he is half Blackwood, and of course his deal is his his the thing people say about him is he's a thousand eyes in one, and that he is watching through the eyes of ravens. So you kind of wonder if he's if he's keeping an eye on his old ancestral home, and if he's aware of some of these things that are happening down there. What would that mean? I don't know, but it seems likely that it's happening, and it's kind of cool to, to think about. I, I certainly think that he's watching, but I don't think he's able to do much about what's happening. Uh, anyways, moving on, though, from uh, the Brackens and Blackwoods, we have another B named Baelish. <laughs> Peter Baelish now has Harrenhal and the Lord Par- Paramountcy of the Riverlands. Littlefinger shows no desire to take his seat, but the implications of Harrenhal at the top spot are potentially huge. Think about it that River uh, Harrenhal was built to dominate the Riverlands, and perhaps all of Westeros in the long run. But at no point has it actually held primacy. Except for the brief period before Aegon had burned Hair and his sons, which was, ex- you gotta realize, extremely brief. Like, the last <laughs> stone had been placed, and it was like pretty much done, and then he came. So, uh... The Riverlands has been ruled from River Run as a vassal to the Iron Throne. It's been the Tullys as Lord Paramount. And this is important because the Lord Paramount receives tax income and the right to call up troops from everyone below. So picture the balance of power here. That's what we're dealing with. Initially, it makes sense that Aegon, the Conqueror, would give the top spot in the Riverlands to a house that isn't quite the most powerful. He doesn't want to give all the tax income and all the, the troops to this really powerful castle. He wants to spread it out a little bit so that things are more balanced. So that's the way things were for so long because the Tullys were never kings in their own right. They never were strong enough during the open times where the might makes right situation was going on. They never held the top spot. So Aegon gave that to the Tullys. So the Tullys were kind of lifted to a higher status because all of a sudden their own lands and incomes are, are, are uh, increased because they are overlord of all the Riverlands. So all the other Riverlords have to pay them homage, give them taxes, send them soldiers when need be. Now, all of a sudden, that's different. Peter Baelish, even though he's never set foot in his castle, has 
potentially has all that lined up for himself. All the River Riverland's income minus what he has to give yes, to the now, crown. Yes, now Lupinger has this plus the veil. Plus the veil, yeah. yeah. Whoa. <laughs> and Cersei, in perhaps the biggest misread of the series since a couple of things Ned did, perhaps, still thinks of Littlefinger as relatively harmless. <laughs> Yeah. Whoa, okay, that's a big mistake there, Cersei. Um, but as an aside that we don't want to get particularly far into, but we really wanted to mention the general gist of, the gist of um, there's this, uh, it's a piece of poster on the forum, but he also has a website, uh, Bran Ross, uh, there will be, there will be a link in the Facebook post and the YouTube video shortly, um, has a pretty interesting piece of writing that's based largely around this quote. I forgot, you've been hiding under a rock, the northern girl. Winterfell's daughter. We heard she'd killed the king with a spell and afterwards changed into a wolf with big leather wings like a bat and flew out a tower window. But she left the dwarf behind and Cersei means to have his head. Of course, this is Sansa we're talking about. So, Sansa's grandmother was Minisa Went on Catelyn's side. Given that knowledge, the bat reference seems oddly fitting. It also means Sansa could have her own claim on Harrenhal, but yeah. we'll see how that develops. Uh, but another point that we particularly liked that made this one of the things that made us want to talk about it is that it's this is a quote from him. We, we don't really quote posters too often, but sometimes we really think enough. it's a nice thing. It's worthy. <laughs> um, he said, he, Bran said, It's worthwhile to note that Brienne's search for Sansa is accomplished with the help of two gifts. One of them originates from Sansa's father's line, the sword ice, partially reforged into Oathkeeper, and the other comes from her mother's line, the shield of Harrenhal. We recover thus the beast, half wolf, the Stark sigil, half bat, the Wet sigil, into which Sansa was said to have, have changed to escape King's Landing. Interestingly, though, Brienne has the shield repainted later, so both the paternal sword and the maternal shield are carried clandestinely. Right, so to recap, that's Sansa's sigils being carried around, in a sense, by Brienne. Both who was hunting for both him. secretly. Right, one is a reforged ice, and one is a painted shield of Harrenhal. Mm -hmm. That's pretty sneaky, George. Yeah. Very good catch by Bran there. We don't want to get too much into, into it, because yeah. there's a lot more to it, but we wanted to kind of tease you with it and give you, give you the opportunity to kind of think about it yourself if you want to. So check out the links that we're going to have accompanying this. Yeah, yeah, to, definitely check more. it out. We love, we, yeah, we love advertising and talking about other people that do really cool things and mm -hmm. try to do that, more of that. Because we borrow a lot of theories from <laughs> other people. We, some of, a lot of this stuff we come up with on our own, but some of it we, we uh, learn from other people. And mm -hmm. it's where we like to give credit where credit to do. Uh, but a few questions remain, even after all this stuff we just talked about. Uh, the particularly big one is, where is the Blackfish? Now, I see no reason for him to leave the region claimed by his king. So he's probably in the north of the Riverlands. Uh, the north? Uh, I see it as unlikely. There's nothing for him to do there. And surely he wants vengeance against the Freys more so, more so than Bolton. If he is motivated by revenge. Right. Jamie considers that he might try to claim Riverrun in Robert Aaron's name. But the Riverrun is much more likely. It is his home. It's where the majority of his enemies are. And if Blackfish wants to push a claim from somebody, there's plenty of people he can't do that with. Mm -hmm. But where within the Riverlands would he be? A pretty strong possibility is that he ends up with the Brotherhood without banners. But if so, he will meet his undead niece. And how that would go is anybody's guess. Uh, I doubt he'd be all smiles. Yeah, how creepy. To, he runs into Catelyn and just that would just freak him out. I don't know what the heck he would do to that. That's, an, that's a very solid guy there. He doesn't seem like he would be easily rattled, but that would... I don't even know. <laughs> Maybe he goes with Howland Reed. That's another possibility. We know that Rob sent some of his men 
up to meet with Hal and Reed, and but the Blackbridge isn't necessarily aware of this. Uh, Brendan appears to be very much still fighting the Stark cause, despite how doomed it is, or it seems like it's over, basically, in a lot of ways. But one of Rob's last official acts was to name an heir. But Blackfish isn't actually privy to who that heir was. He, probably. He may have heard, Rob may have said something to him ahead of time, but the, the document where Rob signed his name and, and had all the other river lords and northern lords sign their name, kind of viewing his will there, uh, Blackfish was not there for that, remember. So he doesn't necessarily know who the heir is. So, Rob's will, that's a good segue. We'll talk about Rob's will for a minute. It happened in the Riverlands. Of course, it deals with the North as well, but Rob's kingdom with the North and the Riverlands. So this is a very, very relevant. Um, we, we know Bran and Rickon are still alive, so the actual heir to Rob is Bran or Rickon, um, but, but only the readers and a few other people know that. Rob certainly didn't know that. Um, mm-hmm. we're actually, the, the, the will is actually signed at Old Stones, which we talked about in episode one as an ancient castle that it really isn't a castle anymore. It's a yeah. site where there's a bunch of stones. Old Stones! Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of an, um, they, they had to take a detour to go through Old Stones to get to the twins because of the rains made the rivers go so high, so they had to go around that. Um, now, keep in mind that the Riverlands is, like I said, half of Rob's kingdom, so he has to make dispositions for the Riverlands as well as the North. The North kind of takes care of itself in a different way because it's always been sworn to House Stark, but this is, this is a different situation with the, the, the Starks ruling over the Riverlands. So the big question is, was Jon Snow legitimized? Well, Rob all but states so when he, when he quarrels with his mother, but that doesn't mean that he wrote it down. Catelyn doesn't actually see the will herself, uh, so as, as best we can tell. Yeah, we're not really sure. Yeah. Where uh, there were some witnesses that were certain about that did see it. So here's another roll call of people who know the details of Rob's will. Jason Malister, the great John. Of course, he's in prison at, at the Twins. Galbert Glover. Edmure Tully himself, of course. Mage Mormont. Maybe Catelyn. We're not sure about that. And Sir Reynold Westerling, perhaps. Now, we're not sure... Which ones actually, we're not assuming that every single one of them actually saw the document. It's a safe assumption that they did, but there's a chance they didn't all see it. Like Catelyn, we're, we're pretty sure she didn't actually see it. She was just a witness to the signing of the document, <laughs> not a witness to the contents necessarily. Um, certainly, Malister and Mormont and Glover saw it because they signed it and were told to go uh, upstream in the Riverland, or rather into the Neck, to deliver the news to Howland Reed. Now, they were told, they were actually told the will, but were given documents with false orders. So the documents they're carrying say something else. They're not, doesn't actually contain the will. They're, they have that, you know, memorized. Now, Sir Reynold Westerling is the other sort of outlier in that group. He isn't a lord, um, he's kind of representing the Westerlings there before their, you know, before half the family betrayed Rob, before that was all known. Now, Sir Reynold was not on the, one of the betrayers. The last we hear of him was he, he tried to save Greywin. So he's, he was loyal when it really came down to it. He fought for the Starks, even when things looked really bad. He was wounded badly in the process of trying to save Greywin. He, in particular, he took a bolt, crossbow bolt to the gut and still managed to climb up to the walls and throw himself over the walls into the river. <laughs> and 
we don't he's a good chance he's dead that's a pretty bad situation to be in but a lesson we've learned throughout a song of ice and fire is if you don't see the body don't assume they're dead so let's see maybe Randall could be out there somewhere and the fact that he's another person that knows who rob named in his will makes him a pretty significant survivor mm-hmm. uh but where are midge mormont and galbert glover now did they make it Probably, but they aren't really likely to sit idle there. They may be helping pick off straggling Iron Men and Freys, or trying to mount some sort of guerrilla campaign. But since they know who Rob's heir is, they most likely are trying to make their way to that person. So, will they arrive at the Wall to find all this chaos, John possibly slain, wildlings, and Queen's men? Possibilities are pretty limitless there. But we won't get too deep into that because it's not in the Riverlands. But it does affect the disposition of the Riverlands later. So what if John does accept Rob's legitimization, only to discover later his claim is worse than Bran or Rickon's? And he'll, he'll, Sam will feel a little guilty for not telling him that those guys were alive. <laughs> well, John didn't accept legitimization from Stannis. It's a little doubtful that he'd take it from anyone, even Rob, though. Rob is the probably the only person he would accept it from. Yeah. Save if Eddard Stark came back from death himself and said, <laughs> you must take Winterfell. I think uh, that's the person he would That would accept. do it, yeah. That would do it. <laughs> He's dreamed of that happening. <laughs> but this is not the only example of the Riverlands, of these Riverlands chapters containing or hinting at major plot points that don't necessarily seem related. In Brienne's second to last chapter, for example, she and her party arrive at the Old Inn. This minor but bloody place has quietly hosted some significant scenes, several of which we covered in parts one and two. We're talking about the place where Tywin and Roose Bolton held for a short time, the same place where Catelyn seized Tyrion, which is maybe the event that started the War of the Five Kings. Uh, it shouldn't be a surprise that so much has happened here. I mean, Brienne ponders the fact that she has little idea where to go, uh, yet so many choices, and with this quote, they had come to the crossroads, Quite literally, the place where the King's Road, the River Road, and the High Road all came together. Mm-hmm. The Inn more recently saw the scene where Sandor and Arya kill Polliver, the Tickler, and the Squire of House Sarsfield. Earlier in the Riverland series, we pointed the series of people who tried to run the Inn only to wind up dead for their efforts. Sir Hyle Hunt comments about the, t- the fate of the various innkeepers and their families. I never dreamed that keeping an inn could be so deadly dangerous. It is being common born that is dangerous when the great lords play their Game of Thrones, said Septon Maribald. But we also hear a story from Septon Maribald that very subtly but very seriously refers to the main plot line with regards to Aegon VI, the boy claiming to be the son of Rhaegar Targaryen. In fact, it deals directly with that very question. Is he the son of Rhaegar? Can you believe it? We got this major clue about a storyline that's got nothing to do with the Riverlands right here. So let's get into uh-huh. it. Here's the story about the end. Later, it passed to a crippled knight named Long John Heddle, who took up ironworking when he grew too old to fight. Uh, he forged a new sign for the yard, a three-headed dragon of black iron that he hung from a wooden post. The, beach, the beast was so big, it had to be made in a dozen places, joined with rope and wire. When the wind blew, it would clank and clatter, so the inn became known far and wide as the Clanking Dragon. Is the dragon sign still there? asked Podrick. No, said Septon Maribald. When the smith's son was an old man, a bastard son of the fourth Aegon, rose up in rebellion against his true-born brother and took for his sigil a black dragon. 
These lands belonged to Lord Derry then, and his lordship was fiercely loyal to the king. The sight of the black iron dragon made him rough, so he cut down the post, hacked the sign into pieces, and cast them into the river. So, what does that mean in terms of Aegon? Well, if you listen to our spoiler episode on Varys and Illyrio, or if you come to this conclusion on yourself, mm-hmm. or read it from the forums perhaps, we believe there's a strong chance Aegon is actually, or actually gets his Targaryen blood as a Blackfire descendant and not as a son of Rhaegar in his line. So what we have here is a really stunning piece of symbolism. A black iron dragon hurled into the water is a great, rather perfect metaphor for bitter steel fleeing across the narrow sea with the remnants of the house Blackfire. Their symbol was a black dragon, while House Targaryen's was the red dragon. The quote finishes with, One of the dragon's heads washed up on the quiet isle many years later, though by that time it was red with rust. That's perfect. The black dragon turns red with rust and washes back ashore. A pretty exact parallel to Aegon, a black dragon coming ashore to invade, thinking himself a true red dragon, but he's not. Well, probably not. We don't know that. <laughs> My jaw kind of dropped a bit when I first when that first became clear to me. It is, of course, nearly impossible to catch that on your own because you haven't even been introduced to Aegon when you read A Feast for <laughs> Crows. So how could you possibly have figured this out? It's another <laughs> one of those things that you can only learn through rereading or through, you know, History of Westeros podcast. <laughs> nice plug. <laughs> In our own video. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Brienne, of course, is aware of none of this. She's more concerned with people living at the inn. In particular, at first, Gendry, who appears to be Renly for <laughs> half a, a heartbeat. After questioning him about his parents, she starts to realize who his father might be. Uh, but as George loves to do... Just as they begin to speak of it, something big interrupts. Of course. <laughs> of course. Gendry thinks it's Lem and the outlaws, who are his friends, but it turns out to be seven very dangerous men, led by a man in Sandor Clegane's helm. Noseless Rorge. Lem and his companions were, in fact, supposed to be guarding the inn, but these men baited them into leaving. Yep. Uh, got to kind of tricked them into leaving and trying to hunt them and in fact doubled back and and cut across their path so Brienne wins a close duel against Rorge mostly by being patient and letting himself tire himself out and by lulling him into lowering his guard by being overly defensive basically she just just stops all his attacks for a while and then when when she's finally ready to go for the kill he's caught off guard she runs him through with his sword and you know whispers something uh, you know whispers a little victory in his ear now Almost immediately, she's assaulted by a berserk biter who kind of saw Rorge, I guess is a bit of an older brother, I don't know, or a father figure, or a friend, whatever. I don't know what a guy like that thinks of in terms of companions. <laughs> but he breaks her forearm, breaks some of her ribs, and starts chewing on her face. <laughs> Pretty horrific. Uh, leaving It kind of leaves her really kind of gross looking after yeah. the fact. And she was already, you know, not, apparently the, not the best looking. She was but. already gross looking. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now she passes out as a result of this. Just as Gendry is driving a spear through the back of Biter's throat. Hmm. She wakes up a prisoner of Lady Stoneheart, who has replaced Beric Dondarrion as head of the now much smaller and more fragmented Brotherhood Without Manners. Thoros says of their new leader, Lord Beric's fire has gone out of this world, I fear. A grimmer shadow leads us in his place. Now, revenant is a term that comes to mind. It's essentially, what it essentially means is a vengeful spirit, a being returned from the dead to wreak vengeance. Sounds exactly like Catelyn, uncat as we call her sometimes. Uh-huh. Uh, and this is where we learn just how low the Brotherhood has sunk, which we discussed a little bit earlier. 
they are just, they're more about vengeance than justice now. I do not doubt that kindness and mercy and forgiveness can still be found somewhere in these seven kingdoms, but do not look for them here. This is a cave, not a temple. When men must live like rats in the dark beneath the earth, they soon run out of pity, just as they do of milk and honey. And justice? Can that be found in caves? Justice, Thora smiled wanly. I remember justice. It had a pleasant taste. Justice was what we were about when Beric led us, or so we told ourselves. We were king's men, knights, and heroes, but some knights are dark and full of terror, my lady. War makes monsters of us all. Are you saying you're monsters? I am saying we are humans. Of course, an obvious jo joke comes to mind. Are you sure we are human is correct there, Thoros? Because I'm not so sure Lady Stoneheart qualifies anymore. She might be a dancer. Oh, God. <laughs> or a choreographer. The way hangmen flail about might be considered a form of dance, right? Anyway, anyone hanging all those frays can call themselves human in my book if they want to. The frays are, of course, the main target of Stoneheart's vengeance, for obvious reasons. In fact, as we mentioned earlier, more frays have died. <laughs> since the end of the war than before it, so or during it, rather. So that's a by a fairly wide margin, so there's a little bit of, bit of irony for Lord Walder, trying to protect his family, and he puts them in a situation where they're more a target than they ever were. Um, but Brienne looks really bad from the Brotherhood's point of view, and even worse to Lady Stoneheart. She wields Oathkeeper and a letter from the, from the king bearing his seal that says that she, he's on, she's on the king's business. So not only that, her companions are Tyrion Lannister's former squire, a knight known to be in the service of Randall Tarly, who is, of course, a Reachman loyal to the crown. And never mind that Brienne is, in fact, looking for Sansa and is trying to rescue her. Never mind that Sir Hyle left Tarly's service. And never mind that Podrick is only about ten years old and has nothing to do with Tyrion anymore. Other than Podrick's age, out of all those details, there's really none of the things that the Brotherhood, none of those things the Brotherhoods really could be privy to. Um, so Brienne isn't, and Brienne isn't exactly great at talking her way out of things. He's no Tyrion. <laughs> um, Tyrion talked his way out of, you know, the being roasted and captured by the clansmen <laughs> and turned them into his own army. And Brienne, you know, she, she's not so good at that. <laughs> so killing Rorge and defending the inn from his companions, which was certainly an act that's favorable to the Brotherhood, that may have helped a little bit. Okay. But it didn't help much, if anything. Uh, she doesn't... At least Brienne and her party aren't hung immediately. Uh, Lady Stoneheart offers Brienne the chance to swear again, this time, to kill Jamie. And uh, meanwhile, not far away, uh, in a galaxy long far away, though, <laughs> after, ga gather after garnering the support, the surrender of House Blackwood, Jamie begins to make his way home. He passes through a place whose name may ring a bell to those who have read the Duncan Egg Tales. Uh, the description of the place also evokes thoughts of hope and renewal. Pennytree proved to be a much larger village than he had anticipated. The war had been here too. Blackened orchards and the scorched, uh, scorched shells of broken <laughs> houses guestified to it. But for every home in ruins, three more had been rebuilt. Through the gathering blue dusk, Jamie glimpsed fresh thatch upon a score of roofs and doors made of raw green wood. Between a duck pond and a blacksmith's forge, he came upon the tree that gave the place its name, an oak ancient and tall, its gnarled roots twisted in and out of the earth like a nest of slow brown serpents, and hundreds of old copper pennies had been nailed to its mm -hmm. huge trunk. Uh, the opening scene of the hedge knight, uh, of the hedge knight, oh, spoiler alert, <laughs> we did say spoilers, uh, finds Dunk as a squire uh, burying his master who's just died. 
the old knight's name was Sir Arlen of Pennytree. There you go. Another dot connected. Uh, Jamie and his party move on from Pennytree peacefully after sheltering there. Uh, Jamie shows more maturity and compassion during their brief stay. The villagers hide behind the stone walls of a holdfast, despite Jamie's declaration that he and his party are kingsmen. A man inside the holdfast responds. Uh, they was kingsmen burned our village, one man called down. Before that, some other kingsmen took our sheep. They were for a different king, but that didn't matter none to our sheep. King's men killed Harsley and Sarah Ormond and raped Lacey till she died. They're basically afraid of everybody, it seems yeah. like. And it seems like they have good cause yeah. to be. Now, Sir Kenos of Case suggests attacking them for the simple crime of, of what? Hiding? <laughs> Not presenting yourself before agents of the crown? Is that a thing? <laughs> uh, Jamie says no. It would be bloody and pointless that these small folk have done them no harm. He tells his men that they may sleep in the houses of the town, but that they are to leave everything alone. Wow, so nice. Uh, no stealing or destruction. I imagine the folk of Penny Tree were awfully surprised to find everything largely untouched by Jamie's men. They were likely expecting the worst, as they had already lived through such so recently, and probably more than once. Now, not long after, Brienne appears somewhat suddenly. On the obvious side, this confirms she wasn't hanged. Remember that she was given the choice of sword or noose by Lady Catelyn, and during the last moment in her last chapter, she screams a word. Martin, George R. R. Martin himself confirms that this word that she screamed was sword. Yes. You can find that in a so spake Martin. It was from MissCon. If you just if you just if you just want to find the source, just do a search for Brienne Sword, uh you MissCon. Well just take our word for it. Yeah, you can just take <laughs> our word for it. We don't lie about our sources. Uh, on the not-so-obvious side, it should be noted that this is a reminder that the Brotherhood is shadowing Jamie's army. It doesn't seem like they've made any attacks. The only assaults on Jamie's party are by wolves. <laughs> uh, Jamie knows that the Brotherhood Without Banners relies on guerrilla tactics. Often they pick off small groups of men who detach from the main body or wait for nightfall when they can use hit-and-run tactics. Exploiting weaknesses, essentially. Right. Kind of like the wolves. Yeah, exactly. Jamie counters this by being cautious, aware, and disciplined. He hears that Walter Frey's hair, heir was his hair. He hanged Walter Frey's hair. Walter Frey's heir was hanged with his men by outlaws only a few days' ride from Riverrun. We mentioned that earlier. This, along with what he's learned along the way, informs him that the outlaws have made have inside information. Rather, we know where that's coming from. Almost certainly, that would be Tom O'Sevens, as well as maybe some other unnamed outlaws that are with him. So, when it came time to send Edmure back to Casterly Rock, Jamie took no chances again. He sends him with an escort of 200. That's not mm. likely something that the Brotherhood can, can handle. No. Uh, so, will Jamie exercise similar caution with Brienne? We know from his inner monologue that he does take the vow and Brienne's quest seriously. She tells him that the Hound has Sansa and is planning on killing her. To prevent, to prevent this, Jamie has to go with her about a day's ride away. Alone. Alone. Okay. That doesn't sound like being very cautious, though, no. does it? <laughs> so that's the big question. A few thoughts and predictions here. First off, uh, note that Brienne says the Hound and Sansa are only a day's ride away. This is, keeps touching on what we talked about, how the outlaws are kind of shadowing, following Jamie's party, looking for weak points, looking for an opportunity. Uh, it's, it seems to be apparent to them by this point that they're not going to capture Jamie through their normal means because Jamie's being too careful. Um, so they have to do something else. So here they go, a new tactic. If they can't get Jamie within his army, maybe they can get him to leave his army. 
Jamie thinks of Brienne as a really honest person. Everyone thinks of Brienne as a really... Everyone yeah. that knows her thinks that she's really honest. <laughs> Except so, maybe Lady Stoneheart now. Yeah, Lady Stoneheart <laughs> now. Uh, so I do think that he'll believe the tale. Uh, from a literary storyline perspective, whenever two point of, view, uh, point of views come together, the odds of one that one of them dies increases. Yep. Now that said, I don't see this being Jamie's end, as I think he has more to do in the story. Honestly, when he was... When he first had his hand cut off, I, I kind of felt like that gave him protection for a while. It <laughs> made him a changed person, and that arc has to resolve. We have to see Jamie's full change, and maybe he has to do some good deeds. I'm not saying that's definitely what's going to happen. That's my guess. Um, he rejected Cersei's pleas for help. He's shown mercy, justice, and fairness. Like I said, he's just a different guy. Um, so I think he's got more to do. Uh, it's also a bit sad, on the other hand, that despite all these changes within him... Pretty much nobody knows that he's a different guy, except mm-hmm. for Brienne. Cersei kind of knows that he's different. She knows that he's different, right, but she doesn't yeah, think of it as a good... She doesn't think of it in a good way. She thinks way. he's a wimp. <laughs> yeah, she thinks he's cotton soft. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, but Brienne herself is another story. Her personal story is not all that important in the scheme of things, but she witnesses quite a few things that are very significant, much of which we've discussed in this episode. Uh, given that the storyline is condensing... More and more of the point of views are converging on common locations. Some people are gonna have to die. Yeah. George needs to get his fill of quota. (laughs) George said he said it himself. But it doesn't have to happen now. Jamie has to escape from the Brotherhood somehow, if my prediction is accurate. I suspect, like Sandor Clegane, he will have a chance to win a trial by combat. Uh... Jamie may even be faced with the noose, but will shame someone like Lem into fighting him by pointing out that he's crippled. Mm-hmm. If he argues that they are afraid to, afraid to fight a man with no sword hand, he might strike a nerve. Yeah. Uh, a wilder possibility is that they grant him a trial by combat, a la Sandor Clegane, and he is forced to fight Brienne or something like that. Brienne wouldn't slaughter him, of course, but she, you know... Or would slaughter him, of course, if they if they actually fought in earnest, because she's just a much better fighter than he is mm. at this point. But perhaps she wouldn't want to. I'm, in fact, I'm certain she wouldn't want to. She might be forced into it. She might rather die than kill someone she thinks doesn't deserve deserve it, though. That's the kind of person that she is. Remember her attitude about the Knight of Saltpans, who did nothing during the raid on his town. He, he despite the fact that his doing fighting would have been hopeless, Brienne thinks that he should have died fighting. So I don't, and I don't think she's a hypocrite on that either. I think that she really would do that. Like she pretty much prepared to die fighting at the old inn there when when the the riders came up. She realized that she had no hope of fighting one on seven, but she had no other choice. So I do think she's being honest there. But my favorite possibility, though, is perhaps no more likely than the others, maybe less likely, is that Brienne, as perhaps the one person who understands that Jamie is a changed man, offers to stand as his champion. Now, she could win, setting them both free, or she could win and suffer a mortal wound that causes her to die shortly after, but still getting Jamie free, and then Jamie would have, uh, you know, this, this, this to empower him going forward. He knows that this person died for him, and he just would really want to do, do right by her. And, and, or she could just lose, and Jamie gets hanged. <laughs> just have them both die. Just forget it. <laughs> awesome. There are many possibilities, in other words. Uh, you should definitely comment. Feel free to send us your predictions. What yeah. do you think What do you, what do you think is going to happen with Jamie and Brienne? So we're going to 
end this episode with what we what we think is actually the perhaps the most important new development in the Riverlands as well as in other areas of Westeros. Before the Jamie Brienne cliffhanger, there was this quote: "Snow in the Riverlands. If it was snowing here, it could well be snowing in Lannisport as well, and on King's Landing." From the epilogue of A Dance with Dragons, remember Kevin's uh, death there. We do know that Jamie is right. It is, in fact, snowing in King's Landing. Winter is marching south, and half our granaries are empty. Any crops still in the field were doomed. Remember that Jamie was asked by many different lords, knights, and other Riverlanders how they were to feed their people and themselves after all the devastation and destruction and burning of crops, and etc. He wasn't being dismissive when he, he basically just had the same answer to give to all these people. He said, plant another harvest and hope. It was literally all he could say. He wasn't just being dismissive. He just didn't have a real solution. The quote continues. There would be no more plantings, no more hopes of one last harvest. He found himself wondering what his father would do to feed the realm before he remembered that Tywin Lannister was dead. And this isn't a small amount of snow. It's not a light dusting. When, when morning broke, the snow was ankle deep and deeper in the godswood where drifts had piled up under the trees. Winter has come. Yeah, that's an ominous ending. <laughs> uh, so that was our episode um, on part three of the Riverlands. We're finally done with the Riverlands. We know it took us a while, it took us a while. We had some real life concerns as well as these ep- the spoiler episodes just plain take us longer to put together. Yeah. So we are sorry for the delay, but they should be coming a fairly quicker after this. We've been doing a lot of work on new formatting stuff. Yeah. So we'll, we'll make some posts on our various social media sites to keep you more up to date about that. Mm-hmm. But we're going to be adding a lot of new features and trying mm-hmm. to expand our scope of what yeah, we're, we're covering. Trying to come up, we're trying to do a website and trying to t- we're going to try to deal with some of that stuff. So uh, look out for that. We're, we're, we've got a lot of things in the pipe, mm-hmm. and in the short term it may slow us down putting out some episodes, but in the long term our content's going to be so much better. We're getting better at this as we go along. Every episode we do, we, we learn some new things, and that's exciting for us and hopefully for you as well. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, but until we have a website up, we should do our social media mentions, um, all the places that you can find us. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Westeros History. We have Twitter, of course. It's uh, at Westeros History. Uh-huh. We have a Gmail account, Westeros History at gmail.com. Send us your emails with long things. We love getting emails. Mm-hmm. For uh, certainly feedback and uh, criticism, questions as well, yeah. all the things we, we also are, have. Welcome. We also, um, of course, have YouTube, mm-hmm. where some of you might be watching this. We have 12 people watching live right now. Oh, yeah. It's pretty cool. We didn't, uh, even, uh, we didn't even set out for that. It just kind of worked out. It just kind of worked out. This is the new... We finally got enabled for YouTube Live before we were using Google Hangouts. So we have YouTube. Um, we're under, our name on YouTube is technically AA Podcast because YouTube has some weird restrictions. Uh but uh, we're, we're we also on Tumblr. Tumblr uh, at we're historyofwesteros.tumblr.com. Right. Um, and those are all the social media that we have for now. Where, of course, we're the main podcast episodes are available on iTunes, as a lot of you know that. Now, mm-hmm. one thing you can do to help us out if you want to support History of Westeros podcast, give us a rating on, oh, yeah, yeah. on iTunes. You can also leave a comment if you want, but a rating, uh, hopefully five stars, but whatever you think yeah. we, we deserve is warranted. Um, that We're helps us a lot. Check and have like ten one star. Oh no! no. <laughs> but it helps us uh, helps us get higher in the page on iTunes. It helps us be seen more. The people, the more comments and, and ratings we have, the more people are going to see us. Mm-hmm. Of course, the more downloads helps us as well. But you guys are hopefully already helping us out with that. Um, so. Uh, anyways, what you have to look forward to coming up, we have our episode of Monscagos coming out. It's already recorded. We just have it's going to be coming out in a, you know a few days. Our new schedule that we're going to try to stick to is going to be a video podcast every other Sunday. 
with the main podcast episodes, hopefully about one a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, those will also be in video form as well, so you might see as many as three videos a month from us. Mm-hmm. We may also um, occasionally add in some additional discussion episodes here and there when mm-hmm. we get to talk some to other table. great people out there mm-hmm. that have good things to talk about. Um, so we have that looking up. We have relig- uh, and we're, we're going to be doing our religion, our series on religions. That could be a lot of episodes because there are a lot of religions, but yeah. probably maybe four. We also have a episode planned for the tournaments of Westeros. Oh, That's yeah. under construction right now. We're going that one of our, in fact, one of our listeners, Drew Vanderhink, he is working on that with us. So mm-hmm. if you have ideas you want to, you want us yeah. to work on for any of those, for any yeah. of those things, you know, send us some information and we might actually let you work with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> Yeah. You got to so, come correct, though. We got, you know, we, we need things to be organized. <laughs> yes. So, anyways, uh, this is History of Westeros Podcast. Thanks for listening and yep. watching. See you next time, guys.